I want to begin by demonstrating for us this morning just how powerful a name truly is. I'm going to do it with just two words, two words that are immediately going to grab your attention, uh, immediately evoke strong emotions, perhaps even immediately divide the room. Just two words and indifference will not be an option for anyone here this morning. You will have no choice but to have an opinion. Ready? Donald Trump. Am I right? Everybody's listening. Everybody's awake. Everybody's engaged. Everybody's opinionated. Some are uncomfortable when you hear that name. Some are angry when you hear that name. Some are happy when you hear that name. Some are amused when you hear that name. Some are annoyed. Some are optimistic. Some are exhausted. But nobody is indifferent. And in a sense, we have no choice. The Trump phenomenon has risen to the point where he cannot be dismissed or ignored. It is as if an, uh, an opinion on Donald Trump is demanded of all of us. His name determines our news cycle. His name divides our nation. His, na- his name dictates the very terms of cultural life in America, perhaps even one could argue global life. As we turn to our passage, this is a, this is a helpful way to understand the mindset of the disciples in the early church and the way they viewed the name of Jesus. Now, lest I get struck down by lightning this morning, I am in no way comparing the name of Trump to the name of Jesus. But the contextual phenomenon that, that, that Trump has created is a really helpful way to view Jesus on a historical, global, even cosmos level. The name of Jesus, just the name, it is history's greatest name. Biblically, it is the name above all names and indifference is off the table when it comes to Jesus. You can love him, you can hate him, you can accept him, you can reject him, but you're not allowed to ignore him. Our passage is going to force us to do what it forced the audience in Acts 4 to do. Reckon with the name of Jesus. And let's look at it in two ways. His name disclosed and then his name imposed. First, let's watch Peter disclose Jesus as the name above all names. Verse 1. As they were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain and temple and Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus resurrection from the dead. Remember last week, uh, his big contention is that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they viewed everything through that, in light of that. Jesus risen, therefore he is God. And they're annoyed that they're preaching the resurrection. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, this is setting the scene of our passage. It's the tension of the passage. But as a brief aside, I can't help but note to you that this is the first opposition that we see in Acts. There will be much more, and it'll get much more intense. This is the first opposition, and likewise, the first what I call counterintuitive fruit in response to opposition. They are arrested, but Luke makes sure to note that... 
their number has increased to 5,000. And this will be the pattern that we see in Acts. Resistance met by revival. Resistance met by revival. And I only note that for us in particular, and we'll return to it in more depth in later passages, but I only note it to point out the American uh, Christian idea of a formidable moral majority is not substantiated in Scripture or, quite frankly, in church history. What we see time and time again in Scripture and in history is that a persecuted minority is far more powerful than a political majority. And this has important implications for us as we see the decline and marginalization and rising persecution um, within American Christianity. And as we see um, the church go away as we have always known it, I just want to say to this, this culture of fear and paranoia, do not fret over those developments. The surprise of revival might just be on the other side of it. But for our purposes today, the scene is set, the apostles have been arrested, and then verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So here's why those details are important. Here's why Luke is noting them. What we see here is that the apostles now find themselves facing the exact same inquisition that Jesus faced not too long ago. Same place, same people, same setting, and this is what they want to know. By what power or by what name did you do this? Meaning, did you heal this man that we saw in Acts 3? Now, we certainly understand by what power, but the by what name is a bit foreign to us. It's, it's because the concept of name is not as contextually significant to us as it was uh, for them For the most part in our culture, uh, we choose names based upon, honestly, just do we like the sound of it or is it trendy? Um, But in their culture, and still for many cultures, names were serious, serious business. And even though we don't really recognize that as much in our culture, we we still do recognize it subconsciously. Um, Again, the Donald Trump illustrations, just say the name and and it evokes something. But... um, But even when we, as parents, I remember naming our children and going through lists of possibilities. And, um, you know, we'd have our list of names we like and go through them. And and, um, it's a tough process, as parents know, because like Abby would suggest a name that she liked. And I would say something, well, no, I grew up with a, you know, blank. I won't use a name because that name is in this room. Um, I grew up with, with, with that person. I grew up with a name like that. And, and he was kind of mean. And I don't really like the name because of it, you know. Names are not just names. They take on the meaning of the personhood who bears that name. And ancient cultures recognize this and its significance. So when they ask, by what name did you do this? They are asking, who's behind this? Whose authority? Whose ability? Whose personhood allowed this man to be healed? Verse 8, Peter responds. Then Peter, or the Holy Spirit responds, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, now that's a little jab 
at the Sadducees and, and the high priests because uh, essentially they're saying, why are we arrested for doing a good deed? This is all about Jesus and the, and, and the Pharisees. They would get mad at Jesus for doing something good because it was more important to them to be right than to be loving. And he, the apostles are doing the same thing here. Why are we arrested for doing something good? This is what he says, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Jesus of Nazareth, the very one who was standing before you in this same court, the very one that you killed, but God raised, this Jesus is the name by which this man is healed. And then what Peter does is brilliantly, or again, I suppose the Holy Spirit does, brilliantly turn it on the Jewish rulers with their own scriptures. What he does is he quotes from our Old Testament reading, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is, a, is what's called a messianic uh, psalm, meaning it, it foretold of the coming Messiah. And it's a psalm of triumph and salvation, the triumph and salvation of the Messiah. But there's this strange quotation that almost seems out of place in the flow of Psalm 118. It might have felt out of place when it was read. We're out of nowhere celebrating the triumph of the Messiah. It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In ancient architecture... The cornerstone was pivotal. Uh, construction was designed such that the weight of the whole structure would uh, land upon this cornerstone. And so the builders were very meticulous about choosing that perfect cornerstone. And in this uh, messianic psalm, we are told that the stone was somehow rejected by the builders but would become the chief cornerstone. Somehow, in this messianic triumph, uh, plan, and somehow in the Messiah's salvation, there would be a figurative stone rejected that would then become the cornerstone of the messianic kingdom. Very, very odd twist to the psalm. Until the Messiah comes and is rejected and is crucified, but then raised by God to become the cornerstone of God's very salvation. So Peter says it explicitly in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. You builders of Israel, you leaders of Israel. This is the stone rejected by you, which has become the cornerstone. The name of Jesus, rejected by the builders, is risen from the dead as God's cornerstone of the construction plans of God's salvation. Upon the name of Jesus rests all God's promises and purposes. The name that is above all names is also beneath all things as the supporting foundation of everything. Which then leads, by implication, to the famous climactic verse here of Peter's little speech. And let's look at that now. So this name has been disclosed as the name of Jesus. Now, it gets personal. Let's look at his name imposed. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If it is true 
that the name of Jesus has been disclosed as the chief cornerstone of God's salvation, then it is likewise true that there is salvation found in no one else, no other name by which we must be saved. Now, I'm not going to take the time this morning to deal with the cultural dilemma of this exclusive claim in our all-inclusive world. I understand that no other name in our culture is exceedingly controversial, uh, which is why I discussed it on my podcast uh, this week. If you haven't listened to that, you can go and listen to what I have to say about the idea of an exclusive truth in an all-inclusive world. But instead this morning, I just want to deal, I'm just going to assume it and deal with the implications of this claim. It is saying what it is. There's no other way to read this passage. Salvation is found in no other name. And it's because of this brazen assertion that the name of Jesus imposes itself upon every single one of us. Meaning, if the claim was that Jesus was a name among other names, an option of salvation among other options of salvation, then you don't have to deal with his name. But that's not what's being asserted here. The claim here is that his is the only name, not a stone, but the chief cornerstone. And therefore, salvation is found in no one else. So what this means is that you can accept him or you can reject him, but you cannot be indifferent. Indifference is off the table. C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus did not leave us that option. His claim is too big. He did not leave us that option. And I'm going to make it even simpler for all of us this morning. It really comes down to this. Very simple. On the issue of this thing called salvation, which is what it's talking about. Salvation is found in no one else. On the issue of this thing called salvation, it comes down to two names. Jesus or yours. Let me explain. Of course, there are countless religious options out there, all promising uh, different forms of salvation and different ways of salvation. I'm not here to deny that. But every single one of them are different takes on the same concept. How can you save yourself? That's not an overstatement. At their core, religions are systems that provide you the opportunity to prove yourself worthy of that religion's salvation. And even outside the religious space, all philosophies are likewise the same. It may not be prove yourself worthy of some religious salvation, but the same principle is still there. I mean, it's called self-help for a reason. They are all systems of self-improvement, promising a reward, a salvation. There is nothing new under the sun. Every religion, every philosophy, every worldview, they are merit-based systems of self-salvation. That is to say, they are different means of making a name for yourself. But then there is this curious alternative that Peter is proclaiming. This utterly unique and revolutionary concept of an alien salvation. Alien in the traditional sense of the word. 
not space alien, alien in the possibility of salvation being found not in oneself, but outside oneself. The possibility of salvation being found in another, only Jesus. Only Jesus offers something so extraordinarily unique and hopeful that you don't save, he saves. You don't perform, he performs. You don't prove, he proves. You don't earn, he earns. You don't make a name for yourself, he is the name for you. And so when it comes to the ultimate question of salvation, my bottom line contention is that you will either trust the name of Jesus or your name. Regarding the plausibility of my personal salvation, it is either Jesus of Nazareth or Robert of Lexington. That's it. I'm going with Jesus. And I strongly suggest you do the same. Why? Because only one of those names has any hope. Notice how Peter only proclaims one option in verse 12, though he's fully aware of the myriad of options. He says, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name by which we must be saved, which is the point. While I believe there are two options, you or Jesus, of those two, only one is possible. Therefore, in reality, there is only one option here, the name of Jesus. If you want to go at this thing yourself, then pick your religion and have at it. You better get to work. Because before you is an insurmountable task that none have ever been able to achieve. The stakes are too high. The demands are too severe. The task is too daunting. But if you want to give it a try, then by all means, have it a go. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to. You don't have to relegate yourself to the insufficiencies of your own name. There is another name. And his name is Jesus. When the virgin found herself pregnant with a child, there was before her and Joseph the impossible task of naming that child. Have you ever stopped to think about that in our culture in their culture where a name is so significant what are we supposed to name a child miraculously conceived by God himself whom heaven has declared to be the Messiah what name could possibly be worthy of this child but thankfully Mary and Joseph did not have to choose it's God's son so God chose the name and this is what was told to them you name that child Jesus for he will save his people from their sins Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, which literally means God saves. Do you know what the name Muhammad means? Commendable. It fits nicely since Islam is a religion where you tirelessly work to commend yourself to Allah. Do you know what the name Confucius means? It's a compound of two words, opening and master. That fits nicely because Confucianism teaches that a path to becoming one with heaven has been opened by your own self-mastery. Do you know what the the name Buddha means? Enlightened. That fits nicely because Buddhism teaches us that through discipline, virtue, and meditation, one might become more and more enlightened until they reach the exalted state of nirvana. 
Do you know what the word atheism means? Ah, theism, no God. That fits nicely because secular unbelief teaches us there is no God. And that you are actually your own God striving within the merit-based Darwinian struggle to create your own meaning, purpose, and success. And then rising alone from the populace of human religion is the name of Jesus. God saves. Buddha's final words, strive with earnestness. Jesus' final words, it is finished. The name of Jesus, God saves. What a beautiful name. And my plea is that you would take him up on his name. Lay down the impossible task of self-salvation and let Jesus do what his name promises to do. Give up the insurmountable quest of salvation and adopt that lovely creed from Horatius Bonner, the hymn writer. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. And yes, Christian, I am still speaking to you. The reason why every religion is essentially the same, a system of self-salvation, is because that's what's natural to us. And that nature is tough to shake. When humanity creates religion, it's only natural that we would create religions according to this nature because that's inherent in us. And that's why it's so hard for us to shake that tendency and trust the unique and unnatural concept of an alien salvation. We trust the name of Jesus, we truly do, but oh, how easy it is to return again to our own name, our own performance, our own merits, particularly when you consider the deficiencies of our own name. We know ourselves, and we are keenly aware of our flaws, and there is this deep-seated suspicion that the name of Jesus can't handle a name like mine. I want you to do something for me. I started this sermon by demonstrating just how powerful a name is by mentioning Donald Trump. Now I want to show you a more powerful name than even Trump's. This is the most powerful name you're aware of. Your own. Don't say it out loud. We're Presbyterians. But I want you to say your name to yourself. Right now in your mind, say your name. Now what comes to mind? I bet you're a lot like me when I think of the name Robert Cunningham. Sure, there are honorable things I could come up with if pressed, but what comes to mind far more easily and quickly are things like insecure, fraud, hypocrite, unfaithful, deficient, immoral, and on and on I could go if you had all afternoon. And I bet you can relate. When I ask people to tell me how they are glorious, which I love to do, it's hard for people to answer that question. But when I ask people to tell me, how are you fallen and sinful and ruined, I get a, where do you want me to start response. We know ourselves, and it ain't pretty. And so when it comes to the name of Jesus and all the promises therein, we just 
struggle to believe it's true for a name like mine. But brothers and sisters, who do you think you are to suppose your name more powerful than the name above all names? Who do you think you are to suppose Jesus won't live up to his name? It's heresy. His name is Jesus. Do not blaspheme his name by supposing yours is greater. His name is Jesus. God saves, and he has lived up to that name. Let me pray. Lift our eyes off of ourselves, off of our own names, and upon the name of Jesus. Lord, nothing does that more than this holy sacrament. Lift our eyes. This do in remembrance of me. Let us remember your name through this act of communion, we pray. Amen.